And let's remain standing as Cornelius comes to read to us from God's word this morning. Reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we're returning this morning to Romans chapter 2, picking up where we left off last Sunday, when we were especially considering Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now there's, of course, a very big problem that Paul is stating there, and more than one, as a matter of fact. So this morning we want to consider that by way of review, the problem stated, and then we'll look at the problem defined and finally the problem solved as we go a little bit more in depth into Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. So to begin then, the problem as Paul states it here. Summarizing the latter half of Romans chapter 1, the good doctor, as he was known, Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote, God has manifested his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in the case of the Gentiles in that he abandoned them. He has given them up. He has given them over to a reprobate mind. He has given them over to working these terrible things with each other that as we have seen, is proof of the wrath of God against ungodliness and sin with particular reference to the Gentiles. And I wish I could say wrath, wrath, like that Welsh doctor did when he used to preach from the book of Romans. Somehow it just felt like it carried more weight when he said it. But Lloyd-Jones went on to say, Paul has said all that. And then as we go into Romans chapter 2, he seems, as it were, to hear somebody shouting out, Amen! Quite right. I am in absolute agreement. Someone who, as Ambrose Bierce once defined the word Christian, believes that the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the needs of his neighbor. Think about it for a minute. As we noted last Lord's Day, this would seem to be the sort of person that Paul envisioned when he wrote Romans 2 verse 1. Therefore, you are, have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Which states very precisely the problem 
that Paul is addressing here in these early verses of Romans chapter 2. Chapter 1 made us aware that all mankind are without excuse because even though they, even though we, knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But then, as we proceeded through that list of what the canons of Dort refer to as serious and outrageous sins, it may have been relatively easy for some of us who grew up in a Christian home and we've been in the church all of our lives to think, well, that description certainly applies out there in the world, but that's not me. And thinking that way, as we noted last Sunday, it's easy for us to pray, maybe not in so many words, but at least in our attitude of heart, God, I thank you that I am not as other men. Now, this, of course, is a problem. We ought not to do this. I cannot emphasize this enough. We cannot confess the sins of others. The New Testament is not a divinely inspired book that is particularly suited to the need of the person who's sitting on the other side of the sanctuary from you today. The New Testament is a divinely inspired book that is particularly suited to the needs of all of our hearts. And when we hear the word of God, we need to not say, well, I sure hope so-and-so heard that because they really need it. We need to hear it ourselves, and we need to hear God's word working within us by his spirit and by his grace, accomplishing his purpose in our lives. It's wrong for us to look at the sins of others and to overlook our, sins, our, our own sins in our own lives. But I think we often tend to do that. We often tend to look at scripture and to look at the judgment of God in sort of horizontal terms. A more recent word for this, and yes, this word is actually in the dictionary, is whataboutism. I like the British way of saying it. They talk about whataboutery in Great Britain. But whataboutism is defined by Merriam-Webster as the act or practice of responding to an accusation of wrongdoing by claiming that an offense committed by another, usually by the accuser, is similar or worse. So someone comes up and says, you know, well, God's word says that, you know, we probably shouldn't do this. And instead of saying, you know what, <laughs> you're right. And feeling convicted in our spirit and turning to the Lord for forgiveness and grace, we right away look at someone, yeah, well, what you did, um, that's kind of the Christian version of your mama. Um, we just look to extend the same sort of judgment to others that we want to avoid ourselves. You see it a lot in political campaigns. You can see it going on in the current campaign. One party takes out an ad claiming that their political rivals are guilty of some egregious behavior. And then the accused takes out an ad in response to that, essentially just pointing their fingers back in the other direction and saying, but what about you? You've done far worse. Think of what this province was like when you were in power. That, that was really bad. Even the current unpleasantness regarding the CRC's 2022 human sexuality report, one line of argument, if you want to call it that, will often go like this. But why are we always so hard on one particular category of sexual sinner when we often seem to stand ready to let another off the hook, which can be true. 
using the language of whataboutery, we would just say, but what about those who have affairs and those who live together and sleep together before they're married and mic drop these days, what about porn? We hear that it's as prevalent in the church as it is in the world. And the rationale seems to be that since we haven't dealt with those things, we really shouldn't deal with these over here as well, or even call attention to them. But as we considered last Lord's Day, we are not meant to judge ourselves by ourselves. We're not meant to look at our lives and say, well, I'm better this year than I was last year. And we're not meant to judge ourselves worse still by holding ourselves up to one another. That's what the Pharisee was doing to that tax collector when they both went down to the temple to pray. He wasn't saying, God, look how great I am and look how bad that guy is in the sense of actually looking at things with the judgment of God. He was just looking horizontally and saying, well, tax collectors are usually pretty vile people and at least I'm not one of those. And frankly, if the tax collector had chosen to do so, as we noted last Sunday, he could have found somebody else who was worse than him. He could have said, well, at least I'm not a prostitute or, you know, what would we say in our day? Well, you know, at least I'm not dealing crack on street corners. It's not hard to find ourselves somehow more worthy than someone else if we just look hard enough to find someone who's a bigger sinner than we are. But we are not meant to hold ourselves up to those kinds of standards. We are meant to hold ourselves up against the standard of the holiness of Almighty God. Because having established the universal problem of sin in the human heart, in Romans chapter 1, Paul went on to write in Romans 2.2, 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So he gave that whole list of things from what some of us would regard as particularly heinous sexual sins all the way down to disobedient to parents, unloving, unfaithful, unkind, describes all of us. And Paul says we know that God's judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things, which is to say it rightly falls on us. If we judge ourselves according to the holiness of God rather than judging ourselves according to the unholiness of some other human being, then we feel that judgment come down. The question is not framed in a horizontal dimension. It's framed in the vertical. We're not to hold ourselves up to some human standard, but to the standard of God's holiness. And that's why when Paul goes on, he asks the question in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, all the things that he wrote about at the end of chapter 1, when you judge those who practice those things, those kinds of things, and yet do them yourself, do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? At the time that Paul wrote this, he was probably addressing those at Rome who came at this issue of judging others from that same old covenant perspective that had caused some in John chapter 8, verse 33, to say to Jesus, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Because there was this strand of thought 
in Old Covenant Judaism that held that it doesn't really matter what we do so much as just who we are. We are the children of Abraham. We are bonded to God by covenant. We have circumcision. Paul will talk about that later on. We have the law and the covenants. And that's enough. That may sound very familiar because today we tend to do that not as old covenant Israelites, but as new covenant Christians. Where we just say it doesn't matter how we live, what we do, we're, we're Christians. We, we're here Sunday morning and we have gathered together to worship the Lord. So let's not worry too much about it. These and their kind today find the sins of others so obvious and yet seem blind to their own. And yet, as we've seen on more than one occasion now, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All. Every last one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, this isn't a contest to say, well, sure, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but I didn't fall quite as far short as someone else. That's, That's not the point. The Apostle James says, he who violates the law, the covenant, at one point is guilty of the whole. There is no shades of righteousness in this thing. We are either perfectly righteous in Christ, or we are still in Adam. And in Adam, according to Paul later on in this book, all die. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So Paul goes on to highlight the nature of the problem with two rhetorical questions. One we've already seen, do you suppose, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And of course they did. Remember, some people actually had the effrontery to stand there and look Jesus in the eye. Jesus had just said, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. This amazing statement of the grace of God in delivering us from the presence and the power of our sin. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They looked him right square in the eye, and they said, We're the children of Abraham, and we have never been a slave to anyone. How can you say that you will become free? Now, they're doing this in a time and a place when their country has been occupied by the Romans, and they've been put under a puppet government of people who aren't even really Israelites. They are, in every sense of the word, physically, spiritually, politically, in bondage. But they're blind to it. They're blind to the reality that's, that's going on all around them. In other words, we will see much more of this later in the chapter. They're saying, we are God's people. We are God's chosen. He will not judge us, no matter how we behave. Sometimes in our day, that takes the form of cheap grace, which Paul will address further in chapter 3. But it always looks like the description that's assumed in Paul's second question, which we find in chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing 
that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Now, this is the error of assuming that if everything's going okay, if the sky is not falling and the world is not caving in beneath our feet in this very moment, if I have just committed some sin and God didn't turn the ground where I'm standing into a big smoking crater, then it must be okay. God must be okay with it. It's the argument that's addressed by Peter and it's illustrated in so many places in the Old Testament. Peter wrote in chapter 3 of his second epistle, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? And in the context of what Peter is saying, they're saying, where is the promise of judgment? You keep preaching that God will judge sin, and yet we look back over the last, you know, however long we want to look back over, a year or two or ten, a century, and we say, well, God doesn't seem to have judged yet. Look, look where North America has come today based on where North America was a couple of hundred years ago. Surely this is not something that God will ever judge, even though we've already seen in Romans chapter 1 that God giving people up to that sort of sin, to all sorts of sin, is actually, that, that is his judgment. And yet we look at the world around us and we say, as these people in Second Peter did, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So surely, I'm okay you're okay. But Peter went on, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these things, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So there was a whole period of time before the flood came and God brought his judgment on that world in which Noah lived, where people were going about their business. Jesus talks about it, as it was in the days of Noah. Everybody was just going here and there, doing what they thought was right in their own eyes, and life was good. They were prosperous, well-to-do, the same could be said for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. And there are so many examples of this in scripture where we know the end of the story and so we look back and we see judgment. But if you put yourself into the decades or centuries before that judgment takes place, they didn't see it coming. They were blind to it. They were blind to their sin and they were blind to the impending Results of their sin. But that doesn't mean that God was blind to it. That doesn't mean that God is blind to it. It doesn't mean that God is unconcerned with our sin or with the sin in the world. Quite the opposite. Peter went on to write, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, which is not some kind of a mathematical, mathematical formula 
It's just another way of stating that what seems like a long time to us, even a lifetime by human reckoning, is the blink of an eye to the eternal God. We think, well, nothing's happened for 50 years. Things must be okay. God, if you go back to his covenant with Abraham, when he was speaking to him, said, your descendants are going to go down into Egypt and they'll spend 400 years there because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And what God is saying there is, there's already wickedness in this land that I've promised on oath to give to you, but it hasn't reached its full level. I'm not ready to judge them yet. So there's going to be four centuries that go by before that judgment comes. Because as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. I think the old King James Version translated that slack. I kind of like that. The Lord is not a slacker. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. See, the kindness and forbearance and mercy of God is not a sign that God's okay with what's going on, either in our lives or in our world. It's a sign that God is merciful and gracious and that God does not always deal with us as our sins deserve. The very thing that Paul was saying in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That's the problem and the solution, both defined in the space of a single sentence. The problem of judging others when we ourselves are guilty of the very same things is that we are presuming on God's kindness and forbearance and patience. We are assuming that because his judgment has not fallen yet, then somehow it never will. But the kindness of God does not consist in his overlooking sin in the way that a kindly old grandfather might overlook the the mischief, let's call it, of his grandchildren. Grandchildren don't sin. Well, mine don't. I don't know about yours, but they just are mischievous once in a while. But the kindness of God towards sinners does not consist in him taking that sort of attitude towards people. His kindness consists in God patiently bearing with our sin for the time. It consists in the one who is too holy to look upon sin saying, and yet I can be patient and bear with that sin and I can give them time to repent, to turn away, and to look to Christ alone for forgiveness and grace. See, the problem is that the judgment of God rightly falls on sinners. That's you and me. It's everyone. That's the problem. The solution is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the kindness and forbearance and patience of God is to be found. 
not in the reckless indulgence of sin, presuming upon God's mercy and grace, just assuming that somehow all of this will be okay. The kindness and mercy and compassion of God is found in accepting and receiving the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ with a believing heart. And that's why when we come to this table to partake of communion, we do not and we cannot come claiming any merit in ourselves. As we noted last week, the the one surefire way to come in an unworthy manner to the table of the Lord is to assume that you could ever be worthy that you could ever earn by your obedience or good works or personal righteousness the right to come to this table where Jesus is literally saying, this is my body and my blood. These things were given for you for the complete forgiveness of all of your sin. If we come thinking, well, I don't really have any sin. I don't need, for, well, then don't. If you think you can be worthy of this table, stay away from it. But we come to this table testifying in our sin and in our weakness, in our need, that we seek our salvation apart from ourselves in Jesus Christ alone. We come in repentance. We come acknowledging who we are when stood up against the, the holiness of God. And we come acknowledging this is the kindness and mercy and forbearance and grace of God who invites us to come to this table now and always, not because we're worthy in ourselves, but because he has made us worthy in Christ. So let me just close with words from Isaiah 55. We've been going around having communion with some of our shut-ins recently, and I've been reading this passage Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. You have to be thirsty, and you have to recognize you can't afford this. You can't afford the grace of God. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And then in verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we don't even know how to pray as we ought. Especially as we stand here contemplating this table where your grace toward us in Christ Jesus has been laid out 
in the bread and the cup that symbolize his body and his blood. We don't know how to be appropriately thankful for your amazing grace, for all that you have shown us in Christ Jesus and for your spirit who has brought us to faith in him. And yet you tell us that your spirit makes intercession for us and groans too deep for human language. And so, Father, we rely on the prayers of your spirit, on the intercession of your son, our savior. And Father, we pray that you may bring us to this table this morning convinced of our own unworthiness and yet convinced of the full and absolute worthiness of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us and for our salvation, we pray in his name, amen.